Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Jess Bodie. And I'm Amanda Reed. Amanda, Woo! welcome to the show. Thank Jess you, is very Rachel. excited. I'm very excited. <laughs> Jess, since you're so excited, why don't you tell our listeners who Amanda is? Amanda is my buddy from college. And you now, go back. Yeah. And now she works here with us at PopSci. Um, Amanda, I'll hand the specifics to you. <laughs> yes. So I first met the lovely, fabulous Jess Bodie in a <laughs> writing class and um, it was like an intermediate nonfiction class and Jess was yeah. doing her science journalism thing. And I was like, Jess is such an incredible writer. I am so <laughs> jealous Stop of it. her. <laughs> Stop it. Um, and so when Jess was in grad school, I was still doing undergrad. So we kept in touch. And then eventually I went on to be one of Jess's former volleyball teammate roommate who also was in that same writing class shout out this tangled web a tangled web shout out to you jenna and then jenna at one point casually was like i am going to go play semi-professional slash maybe professional volleyball it's professional Professional. yeah overseas Yeah. yeah oh my god so, There's no professional <laughs> leagues in the U.S., so they're all overseas. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Jenna was like, I'm going to go play professional volleyball in Germany. Would you like to foster my cat, Mink, for a hot minute um, since you have lived with Mink before? And I was like, absolutely. I would love to be her weird aunt. Mm-hmm. So... That's the story. Um, the world is <laughs> the world is very small, actually. Fun fact. Yeah, but but now you do tell us what you write about. Yeah, so I work on the gear team here at Popular yeah. Science. So any doodads, gizmos, and whatchamacallits, if they're on sale, I'll write about them. If they're really good, I'll write about them. <laughs> And if they're not good, I'll be as nice as possible. Um. Nice. What a lovely quality that is. Amazing. Well, Amanda, we're so excited to have you on the show. Um, So let's get into it. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned this week, we start by offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc. And decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, 
we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Jess, what's your tease? I want to talk about fire swamps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Great. I I have no idea what it means, but I'm excited for you. I'm I'm excited to divulge. Um, I am going to talk about um, how roaches are changing the way they have sex and how it's all our fault again. (sighs) This has happened before. <laughs> wow. I, oh, I, I'm intrigued. I, I didn't <laughs> even know there were different ways that they could do it. Well, there are now. Okay, sure. <laughs> wow. Uh, Amanda, what's your tease? Yes. So my tease is scientific scams, why they happen, and how to potentially spot them. Hmm. Huh. Huh. Intriguing. Feels very relevant in today's day and age. Feel like there's many scammers. Yes. Um, and actually, there's a little bit of context of why I chose to delve into scientific scams. Which should I just should I just go? Since you could go first. <laughs> yeah, wow. we don't usually have new people go first, but you're you're rolling with it. So why don't you yeah. roll right into Only it? Only for the comfort of the guest. So if you would like to go first, we would love to have you go first. I would I would love to go first because I'm just so excited about this. So for context, <laughs> I love reading about scams, grifts, heists. Like if it involves lies and manipulation, I'm in there like swimwear. <laughs> I get that. Yeah. There's actually a really wonderful podcast I listen to called Scam Goddess that you should listen mm. to after you listen to Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. That it's like my favorite podcast to listen to while I'm pairing socks together. Mm. Wow, that's specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, that is a good podcast pairing activity. Like. Yeah. Like laundry, laundry and podcast. And if you have like mm. a really good pair of headphones, mm, chef's kiss. So <laughs> I wanted to see if there is an Anna Delvey of science, which led me down a big old rabbit hole because scientific scams are more common than we think. For example, the vaccines cause autism study. It's a huge scientific scam. The sure, yeah. deeply flawed original 1998 study by Andrew Wakefield was retracted and he had his medical license revoked for it, but people still run with it and quote it today. Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Scientific it's true. scam. That is a scientific scam. Wow. Like, it was just it's so it's just plain sight. I didn't even think twice about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Neither did the investors of Theranos. <laughs> They were like, uh, yeah, this blonde woman, I believe her. Her, her voice her turtlenecks. Is... <laughs> yeah. Compelling. Yeah, like that Edison testing device was not doing anything magical with those finger pricks of blood. And now she's serving time for it. So what defines a scientific scam, a.k.a. scientific misconduct? This is from our friends at the National Academy of Sciences. I'm quoting and paraphrasing this definition from On Being a Scientist, a guide to responsible conduct in research, which they authored. The U.S. Office of Science and Technology Policy defines scientific misconduct as the, quote, fabrication, falsification, or plagiarism in proposing, performing, or reviewing research or in reporting research results. And then they go on to define these elements. So fabrication is making up results or data. (laughs) Falsification is manipulating research materials, equipment or processes, or changing or omitting data or results such that the research is not accurately represented in the research record. So, for example, photo manipulation with Photoshop, which, quick aside... If you know Photoshop, the world is absolutely your oyster. Big time. <laughs> it's true. At this point, if you even know Canva, the world is your oyster. Yeah, that's like, true. <laughs> Canva has really stepped up their game. Yeah. yeah. Really opened up the scam market, I would say. <laughs> Indeed. Um, like like memes? Canva, don't sue me. I love your products. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> not Canva, not just for scammers. <laughs> 
Also for graphic design girlies. Also um, for graphic design girlies. <laughs> if you need an infographic made, Canva's your girl. <laughs> but like, I wonder, because the big thing with Photoshop, which we do not support, we are not endorsing this practice, <laughs> but like bank statements. You know, I wonder mm. if Canva's trying to get in on the bank statement creating <laughs> game. Like, are the girls getting those apartments that they're, that they're applying for? Right. Thanks to Canva. Or is Probably. it? Probably. They just unro- unveiled the magic eraser tool. So oh, perfect. Yes. There you go. Done deal. So selfies and ba- bank statements. You can do it all through Photoshop or Canva. So back to back to the terms. So plagiarism uh, is, as we all no, the appropriation of another person's ideas, processes, results, or words without giving appropriate credit. Uh-huh. So some places even add abuse of confidentiality in peer review, which is um, if it's not anonymously conducted or if the... I see. If the I'd, peer reviewers know whose paper it is. yeah. Which would bias them to be like, oh, yeah, this is big famous man's paper. It's going to be correct. That's my pal. Uh, (laughs) So this is uh, another fun. Yeah, this is another fun thing that they consider misconduct. Failure to allocate credit appropriately in scientific publications. So there's ghost authorship where the real author is not listed as an author. And then there's guest authorship where someone who wasn't involved in the research adds their name, mostly sure. for credibility clout, which is Whoa. fabulous. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, well, and so much of that is like, it's so, at, at least my understanding is that um, it's such a gray area because it's like standard practice, right, for the head of a lab mm-hmm. to have their name on a study. Right. And of course, in most labs, your grad students, if they're doing a study, your highly involved as their advisor but like the extent of your involvement can vary widely and the extent to which people assume you are involved also varies widely so I think sometimes you do have these situations where there's um, a more senior academic who like pretty much just was like this is cool good job on it and then their name is on there for credibility which is like is that such a problem probably not most academics would say but then it becomes a problem if you're using that to like grease the wheels on really shoddy research that that person didn't actually like verify was good um but yeah it's like I can I feel like that that one in particular is like a very blurry line in academia yeah and then and then there's more there's more (laughs) so not observing regulations governing research, failure to report misconduct, or retaliation against those who report misconduct. Sure, yeah. And this one, with my understanding of how submitting research to journals works, is kind of crazy. Because I know in journalism, it's not like you can submit the same pitch at the same time to multiple places. Um, And you just have to be really kind of open about it. But in scientific research, submitting to more than one journal at once is considered misconduct in You get angle-fingered. I don't remember why it's called that, but I remember that's what it's called. Wait, what is that? Ivan Aransky used to be like, you don't want to get them angle-fingered. Oh my God, that just unlocked a memory. (laughs) TBT grad school, NYU shirt. But yeah, because it's like, the reason it came up in our journalism class was that some scientists are, this is probably not so true anymore because I think at this point, all working scientists have a basic working understanding of media because like we all do. But um, at the time, it was like some older scientists will think that they can't risk talking to you because if you broke the embargo, it would mean that their research had been, quote, published in another journal first, even though that journal would be like the New York Times. 
Yeah. So it was like he it's not actually breaking the rule, but he was like, listen, some some scientists will be really paranoid about you covering their work when it's embargoed because of the Engelfinger rule. And that's all I right. remember about it. Yeah. I remember it mostly because Engelfinger. Yeah. Is- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of fun vocab in this segment. Mm. Great. So, numbers time. Rachel, <laughs> Jess, percentage-wise, how much scientific misconduct do researchers admit to? Admit to? Like, versus what what gets found out without them? Yes. So, okay. like, personally, like, in their own... Oh, little like they work. say, like, I have probably bended those rules yeah. before. Okay. I'm going to say like 15%. Oh. I'll say, I don't know, probably like 10%. I feel like nobody would un- own up to that. Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah. I probably I guess know. too high. <laughs> so I don't know. You guys, you guys are right. Um, according oh, okay. to Sick. A- <laughs> According to a 2009 study titled How Many Scientists Fabricate and Falsify Research, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Survey Data, say that five times fast, around Mm. 2% of scientists have admitted to fabricating, falsifying, or modifying data or results at least once. 2%? 2%, which you guys are right. Not that many one to admit to it. However, around 34% have admitted to performing other questionable research practices. What? Yeah. I bet it's one of those things, too, where if you, like, describe the thing they do without, like, calling it misconduct, that, like, a lot of people will be like, yeah, I've done that. Yeah. Everybody does that. And then you're like, yeah, that's... Gotcha. The definition of gotcha. plagiarism. It's like, oh no, I told my friends my research over happy hour drinks. Right. I'm I am no longer allowed to be a scientist. <laughs> yeah, listen, there's a spectrum of, <laughs> of yeah. poor behavior. I, yeah. I have to imagine it varies a lot by field. Mm. Yeah. Which totally. um, we also will get into oh, later. Good. I wanna know who the worst is. Yeah. So the study also put out a survey asking about the behaviors of colleagues. Mm. So (laughs) when researchers are asked about their colleagues, admission rates were around 14% for falsification and 72% for other questionable research practices. Damn, people are ruthless, (laughs) not loyal. Yeah. Wow. Shocking. They need to, they have some stuff to work out. Yeah. I think so too. <laughs> Interdepartmentally. I think yeah. the researchers should fight maybe. <laughs> That's a good way to solve it. Yeah. With classic fisticuffs. Um, we do mm-hmm. not condone violence on this podcast. <laughs> um, but we do condone like classic fisticuffs in, in like a consensual setting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you call them fisticuffs, mm-hmm. if you wear like an old timey strongman outfit while you do it, yes. I can know that. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. That's something I can get behind. So why does this happen? Scientists are people too. Breaking what? news. Crazy. And people do dishonest things to climb the career ladder. And research is a competitive field. Mm-hmm. So David Goldstein, a physicist and Caltech professor, studies scientific misconduct and has identified three motives for doing it. Career pressure, naturally. Knowing the answer to the problem they were considering and believing that it was unnecessary to do the work properly. Come on. Essentially arrogance. Just call it arrogance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, like it feels very seventh grade science fair to me. Like, yeah. oh gosh, everyone's done the Skittles color distribution test. We all know grape is the one that is least included. I'm just going to look at one bag, take some pictures and make up the rest of the figures. Right. And to, me, that's, 
so much more like upsetting and problematic and like makes me suspicious of all of that person's future work than just like wanting to get ahead and yeah, be totally. like, I'll be sneaky. The being yeah. like, actually, I don't have to actually do science to be a good scientist is like, no, so, so danger. Bad. Yeah, Alarm danger. bells. <laughs> danger, danger. We will, we will. Someone bonk them over the head with a beaker, please. <laughs> and those beakers are made of borosilicate glass, which means they're pretty sturdy. <laughs> I thought we don't condone violence. <laughs> Only if it's something that would happen like in the Three Stooges. Yeah, right. exactly. With with sound effects. Yeah, it's like that Snapchat filter. Does anyone remember the Snapchat yes! bonk filter with the little bonk sound? Bonk. <laughs> That's a vintage Snapchat. I mean, I I don't know. I guess people still use Snapchat. Yeah. But. It was a yeah, a good vintage. Yeah, vintage meme. Um, anyway. <laughs> so speaking earlier to what field does this happen the most in? So science misconduct is more likely to happen if they work in a field where data is not precisely reproducible like mm. life sciences sure and yeah. the data manipulation is more difficult to detect which means it's easier to cheat yeah. right that you tracks. know whenever you i mean like this was a huge thing in nutrition research a few years ago and it's like yeah because nutrition research is pretty much based on user surveys and like those are already kind of messy data to work with mm-hmm. like pretty unreliable data so then it's just like so easy to just like throw in some people who don't exist or like accidentally lose a few people yeah and then there's all the statistical manipulation yeah you can do so wild wild so who or what keeps scientific misconduct from happening um it kind of operates similar to the honor system, which might not work. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, study authors are expected to check their findings when submitting to academic journals, which sometimes people don't check their work. And they're, they're just like, mm, I'm done. Here you go. Yeah. Um, misconduct investigations usually come from that person's academic institution which is a rigorous and pricey process Mm. and if the person in question is a high up individual there could be some conflict of interests and covering up happening sure Mm. yeah um calling out misconduct is also on the shoulders of colleagues reporting their concerns which means if you don't have that much skin in the game you might not be comfortable expressing your concerns when seeing scientific misconduct. So thankfully, preventing misconduct gets more concrete when you hit the journal level, thanks to the Committee of Publication Ethics, which has clear retraction guidelines, but it's on the journal editors to spot it. Like there is no Turnitin enterprise that journals use for articles they receive, at least to my knowledge or research, which is which is I feel it's very interesting because like as a college student, at least for me, um, like making sure a research paper was plagiarism free was like a huge thing. So it's like Turnitin was the friend. Yeah. The bomb. Mm-hmm. And I also he- I also feared it though. You yeah, know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, what if I accidentally do something that gets caught by Turnitin.com, and then I'm like, what do I even do? I yeah, mean, that never happened. But like, what? Like, uh, you just what's my word against the robot? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> and what if I use Turnitin, and Turnitin is like, okay, no plagiarism. Congratulations. Go on your married way. Um, but. Like, if my professor were to check my paper, like, what if there's some secret plagiarism that Turnitin didn't check? <laughs> this is the so telling about anxiety. the kinds of kinds of students we were. I, I don't think this is the way everybody thinks. <laughs> we just want to tell the truth. That's we all do. we want to do. Yeah. So how do you potentially spot scientific misconduct? So... Mm. A 2016 study titled Linguistic Obfuscation, which, fun vocabulary word, it pretty much means, like, covering up. Oh, okay, Linguistic Obfuscation in 
fraudulent science. Looked to answer that question. The authors, Jeff Hancock and David Markowitz, looked at the archives of PubMed, a database of life and sciences journals from 1973 to 2013 for retracted papers. They identified 253 primarily from biomedical journals and compared them to unretracted papers from the same journals during the same years and covering the same topics. Their hypothesis was that scientists know they're committing misconduct and they skirt around their findings using language. Looking at the kinds of language they use can differentiate a scammy paper from a legit one. Mm. Which Like they use words with like a little wiggle room or something? Yeah. So they rated the level of fraud in each paper using an obfuscation index, which calculated oh. the degree to which the authors attempted to mask their false results. They created this index by looking at the number of casual terms used, looking at abstract language, jargon, positive emotion terms, so like good, great, all that jazz. And they also looked at um, ease of reading score. So like how easily can someone read this paper? Like mm -hmm. what is the grade level? I feel like I want all of these things, but to use for the dating apps. Yes. <laughs> Totally. Like, I think that that would help me weed out so many bad actors. Totally. <laughs> I'm kind like, of surprised that nobody has done that. I definitely, right. at the tail end of my dating app career, um, I started to notice a lot of people using scripts, which had not been yeah. a thing up until I that see, point. I see a lot of like recycled jokes. Oh, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Yes. Or like themes. Like, yeah. I love The Office. It's like, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Yeah. And I also see a lot of stuff going around on TikTok that people just like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Like, be original, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, anyway. Have some integrity. <laughs> yeah, some yeah. Integrity with Come your on. dating apps. The obfuscation. The obfuscation <laughs> of Tinder. That's, <laughs> that's a paper in itself. Like, we've moved past dudes saying... I'm six foot when I'm actually five eight, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Listen, as a six foot two woman, it's rough out there. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I recently watched a TikTok where a tall lady like picked up her small boyfriend. Yeah! And I was like, <laughs> tall lady, pick me up. <laughs> representation representation matters it matters <laughs> anyway back to the scamming back to, <laughs> sorry back to scientific misconduct so <laughs> they found that fraudulent retracted papers scored significantly higher than those retracted for other reasons and that fraudulent papers used 1.5 percent more jargon than unretracted papers so scientific scammers will cover their lies by manipulating language like using fewer positive emotion terms to describe mm. the data so no one looks into it oh <laughs> be like the data's fine yeah it's, okay. it's we're, good we're it's, reasonably it's cool. pleased with it yeah don't look twice at it please Thanks. yeah <laughs> please look at look at our beautiful graphs that we may or may yeah. not have manipulated using canva <laughs> yeah <laughs> so could this be the basis of a research-based turn it in hancock again one of the authors of this study isn't so sure that academia is ready for such a tool he says scientific fraud is of increasing concern in academia and automatic tools for identifying fraud might be useful but much more research is needed before considering this kind of approach. Obviously, there is a very high error rate that would need to be improved, but also science is based on trust and introducing a fraud detection tool into the publication process might undermine that trust. The, I, I kind of think maybe science should be based on facts and evidence and yeah. not trust. <laughs> No, yeah, that might be part of the problem here. Yeah. I do think that the, the point about the error rate is much more, um, you know, meaningful. Like yeah. anytime you're getting uh, AI to detect something, you're, you're going to mess up. It's going to it's going to end up detecting something else that's stupid. 
And you don't want to realize you're accidentally targeting like humble early career scientists who yeah. just are trying to sound really impressive, but also not make their data sound too good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, more more research needed. But I would say that like eventually a tool to verify facts in uh, or a, a tool to verify like trustworthiness in an academic paper um, would not make science less good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Unfortunately, we cannot rely on the values of trust and friendship to like make sure that yeah. science is happening. <laughs> the power of friendship. The power, the power of, of friendship. And it's just like two people in white coats cheersing beakers together right right <laughs> so a uh, more scientific scam fun facts retraction is a slow process or it can be a slow process if you look at when a fraudulent paper was published and when it was retracted it can sometimes be a 10-year difference which is a little concerning that's a long time <laughs> yeah a very long time and some of the retracted papers I looked at, like the paper was published in like 1983 and then finally was retracted this year. So it can even be That's longer wild. than 10 years. That's a long time for like the like false data to just be like chilling. Yeah. yeah. I do think that it's the, the turnaround time has gotten faster yeah. in the age mm. of the Internet. So like with a lot of oh. those, I think it's. It's that they got online and then someone was like, uh, right. <laughs> what, it, what the heck is this? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. Another scientific scam fun fact. A 2013 paper suggests that men are more likely to have papers retracted for fraud. Hmm. No comment. No comment. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> And one retraction doesn't mean that all of a scientist's papers will be retracted. Sure. A journal called Respiration said in 2018 that it wouldn't retract a paper by romantic grifter and scientific scammer Paolo Macchiarini after his personal and professional cons were revealed. But they said JK in April 2023 and retracted it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's, it, it is fair to be like, just because this person is a lying liar doesn't mean they never endeavored to do a good scientific study. Right. You know, there are lying liars in every field, and some of them do good work when they're not lying. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad that they followed up. I'm, right. I'm, I'm glad that they came to some <laughs> conclusions. Yeah. Anyway, if you want to learn more about specific scientific scams there's a beautifully researched wikipedia page on scientific misconduct that lists a bunch of them and then you can also visit www.retractionwatch.com which follows yeah. the subject super closely they also have a leaderboard of who has the most retractions that prize <laughs> topping the leaderboard is yoshitaka fuji with 183 total retractions what very nice what, what? <laughs> one of the founders of retraction watch is the professor who told us about inglefinger yes. yeah. <laughs> it all comes back to sharp thanks yes. ivan we thanks love you, ivan Do i you don't know you, but i love your work <laughs> <laughs> so the moral of the story is watch for jargon lies will catch up to you and learn photoshop or even learn the basics of Canva. There you go. Ah, amazing. I loved it. Me too. Wonderful. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, we're back. And I'm going to talk about um, roaches and how they have sex and how humans are changing it and messing it up. <laughs> um, so a recent study showed that human interference may have had a big impact on the way German cockroaches romance one another. Um, and this is not the first time that we've done that. <laughs> we God. Um, so we'll have to start by talking about German cockroaches and German cockroach sex. Um, so German cockroaches uh, which actually have African origins and in Germany are apparently called Russian cockroaches. Oh, so my God. Because it reminds me of like syphilis was like the French pox and but the French called it like, you know, the Swiss pox. It was, you know, it's, it's classic, <laughs> classic thing people do. Um, yeah. A geographic so, nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so they're the little brown roaches that... Um, City folks in the U.S. are uh, very lucky to find in abundance in our kitchens frequently. Right. Um, according to the University of Florida, and this is a quote, the German cockroach is the italics cockroach of concern. The species that gives all other cockroaches a bad name. Um, cockroach of concern. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which <laughs> to me feels like a little unfair because they're not like inherently super dangerous or destructive or anything like they they can um, contaminate your foodstuffs and carry pathogens yeah. the way any pest in your home could potentially. But most of the time, they're not really going to do that. You might have an allergic reaction to them the way you do the dust mites. But for most people, it's just like uh, it's a, an emotional thing. Right. <laughs> because, wow. of, I mean, we recently had Bethany Brookshire on and mm. she wrote a book about uh, pests and how we feel about them. And that's really it. It's about how we feel about them more than what they do. Um, so German cockroaches, like you don't want them in their house, but I would strongly prefer them to like having giant American cockroaches scuttling around. Yeah. Um, I, I guess- think the German cockroach is wunderbar. <laughs> oh. <laughs> God. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I think they're probably considered the biggest pest because they are like literally the most common cockroach species yeah. worldwide. And they're the ones most reliant on human habitats to survive. Um they like will not live if they're not living in somebody's kitchen. Um they're just little right. guys. They're just um, little, little guys. guys. Aren't yeah. we all? Right. So they're the ones by far most likely to just like fully infest a building. So, you know, the University of Florida is is right that like they they cause concerns. Um, and yeah, fun fact that I just learned today, uh, only around 30 cockroach species out of 4,600 are associated with human habitats. So not oh. only are most cockroach species not pests, but most of them like are are wild. They have a life completely separate from life. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah, I knew there were some cockroaches that like are wild animals and don't have anything to do with the ones in my <laughs> in my apartment despite my best effort. Those country roaches. <laughs> right, but it's actually like very unusual um the ones that have adapted to live with humans. Um Wow. Yeah, German roaches uh back to how they have sex. Um, when it's time to do the deed, 
a male cockroach will provide a, quote, nuptial gift, which is a great euphemism to his female of choice. Um, (laughs) It's a solution full of proteins, fats, and sugars. So it's actually quite a bit like giving chocolate to someone that you're trying to woo um, if you secreted that chocolate from a gland (laughs) under your wings. I'm not going to lie. That's kind of (laughs) cute. I kind of love that. It is it, like it's it's sweet. It is sweet. <laughs> Literally. Um, yeah, the goo contains maltose, which quickly turns into glucose when it hits a female's um, saliva. So the way that this works is that this very delicious gift uh, entices the female to climb up onto her sugar daddy's back, basically. Literal um, sugar daddy. Literal yeah, exactly. sugar daddy. And um, that gives him an opportunity to latch his, I'm so sorry, hooked telescoping penis um, uh, onto her reproductive tract. Uh, um, ouch. But it's not, you know, it's not like a bed bug situation where it's like a, a wound like they do. Right. It is intercourse as we know it. It's just that the their little instrument is horrifying. <laughs> um, so it's, it's like if somebody left a little trail of chocolates to the bed. <laughs> Yes, and then they have like that, and then they have a scary (laughs) looking genitalia. That part we we definitely want the metaphor to end before that, but yeah, but the chocolate leading up to the bed is pretty accurate. Um, Yeah, and so then then the cockroaches face in opposite directions, like the female turns around as if to say, "Uh," (laughs) and then they just stay attached. At the bub, and they stay that way for an hour and a half. Oh my Whoa. god! And they say romance is dead. Um, so, how did humans screw up this process? Uh, so, in the late 20th century, we messed it up because roaches love sweet treats, um, nuptial and otherwise. Uh, and it, you know, it's very obvious that like being into sweet stuff is a very important like evolutionary trait for them because it's part of their mating process. Um, but then researchers created pesticides that contained glucose in order to tempt the roaches into poisoning themselves. Um, and it worked so well that by the 1980s, there were these German roach populations in Florida that no longer sought out sweet stuff to eat. Um, several other populations have shown similar mutations since then. But basically, hijacking the cockroach sweet tooth was so effective that bugs with like weird sugar hating mutations were just doing so much more baby making than all the other roaches that this started to become like a pretty common um quirk wow and that is a real problem for amorous male roaches um last year researchers actually confirmed that females with this glucose aversion mutation actively avoided male nuptial gifts so basically they'd like be tempted over by the smell of like the fat and the protein um but then as soon as they got a taste of it they would run away from the meeting wow. they were like Bleh. yeah it gave this them is... the ick and they left yeah. <laughs> this is all like very real to real life <laughs> i know that's what i was thinking too <laughs> so um Obviously, that isn't something scientists were like, wow, we need to fix this problem because nobody wants more of this particular kind of roach in the world. Um, In fact, many people probably would have considered it like, wow, like if our pesticides aren't going to work as well as they used to, at least we've made them like not want to have sex anymore. That's uh, a silver lining. Um, They were, however, concerned about the fact that sweet pesticides like weren't working so well anymore um they still do work for like most roaches but basically the way they caught wind of this mutation for the first time was that somebody in florida was like no matter what i do these roaches will not die and it was because they just literally had stopped eating what had up until then been a super effective baited pesticide um so yes we scientists are studying this because they're like how do we keep outpacing the roach taste buds yeah Um, and roaches do adapt very fast. They're known for that. Um, they're very resilient. They like, they're they're squirrely. They'll figure they figure stuff out. They'll find a way. Um, and unfortunately for us, it seems like they have found a way to oh, no. uh, get around this glucose aversion sex problem. So um, this is from a new study published in April. 
and scientists showed that glucose-averse male cockroaches have, in some cases, developed two new traits to deal with this issue. Uh, first of all, they've started to secrete less maltose um, in their homemade chocolate and replaced it with uh, a higher level of um, maltotriose. Um, and that's a more complex sugar molecule. It takes longer to break down, um, like five minutes to turn into glucose versus a few seconds. And actually, even when females don't have a glucose aversion, they seem to like this stuff uh, better. I think it's actually sweeter once it hits, is is my understanding. Um, and because there's such a long delay in it turning into glucose, the female cockroaches that do have this glucose aversion like won't scurry off before the mating starts. I see. The males also got faster <laughs> in doing their like chocolate to genital bait and switch. Wow. Um, it usually Efficient. takes the male like three to four seconds to um, lock on to their target. <laughs> to lock dock. on. Um, but scientists say that the ones they observed had shaved around a second off of that time, which makes a big difference. Speed um, runners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cockroach speed runners. Press the yeah. L to target and then go. <laughs> and then meanwhile, the females seemed to be developing changes in their saliva that made the process of turning maltose or maltotriose into glucose even slower. So again, like the roaches that are successfully reproducing have these quirks that get around this new glucose aversion. Um, one caveat is that all of these roaches were like lab populations. So it's not clear if this has or could happen, like, you know, with the roaches in your kitchen. Mm. Um, but it has, you know, they didn't do anything in particular to these roaches <laughs> to make them adapt. Right. They just... Um, kept trying to poison them probably <laughs> yeah um but yeah that's my whole story um you know i was talking about this on science friday for the news roundup and they were like rachel you wrote a whole book about sex and its evolution and that is true i wrote a book called been there done that arousing history of sex uh which is on sale wherever books are sold <laughs> and hell yeah Ooh, um, go buy it <laughs> We're gently asking you to do so, but not pressuring you or anything. But um, you know, they were like, "How, you know, what? What do you think this says about the evolution of sex?" And I was like, "It's a great reminder that like sex is a process that is like the result of a bunch of environmental pressures over a long period of time." And yeah, it changes way faster than roaches than it did for like our pre-human ancestors, probably. But like, it's a, it is true that like, you know, sex has not always worked the way it does now. And um, I think that's cool. It's like, it's yeah. a very like DIY process. Like, <laughs> totally. Sometimes it's got to change, and um, roaches aren't aren't fussed they're just they just do what they got to do so there's no toxic story. there's no toxic masculinity in the roach, in the roach community. there's uh, no room for it <laughs> so like not only will roaches possibly survive a nuclear apocalypse they will be better <laughs> for it because there won't be humans trying to poison them and changing the way they bone right yeah it's wow. a fair point it's time to leave them alone. No, I I say that um, as I like am reminding myself it's time to replace the bait traps in my kitchen. So. Totally. Hope there's not too much evolution going on in my kitchen cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And Jess, fire swamps. Fire swamps. Okay, so once more, I was inspired to do this fact because of a video game. Are you what? surprised? Not Yay. surprised. Um, so this is a Dark Souls 1 related fact. I was kind of doing a casual playthrough of Dark Souls 1. I played it for the first time like two years ago. Not my favorite Souls-like, Soulsborne game, but, you know, it's a classic, very formative for the genre, etc. 
was doing a Zweihander. Zweihander, this is a German-themed episode, I guess, run um, <laughs> of the game. It's a big sword. Um, but yeah, big anyways. Sword. Um, I was playing Dark Souls, and also my best friend, Lindsay, has been streaming her first playthrough of the game on Twitch. So I just had Dark Souls on the brain. Um, and there, there is a, a fire swamp in this game. So basically in Dark Souls, there's this super notorious area, and it's called Blight Town, which, you know, just off the bat sounds quite inviting. Um, and it's notorious for being really, really sucky and really difficult and super jank. Um, so this game came out back in like 2011, I believe it was like on PS3, Xbox 360. It's an older game. Um, and this area of Blighttown is this like series of rickety wooden platforms and scaffolding that are all attached to like the side of this giant cliff. And because there's so much data loading in, like items and enemies and bonfires and chests and everything, the game just gets super framey and stuttery. And it's just like, you know, people have called it unplayable. Um, And it's, you know, it's better in modern consoles and the remastered version, yada, yada. But you traverse this, like, this very difficult area. You get to the bottom and you think, oh, God, finally, salvation. (laughs) No, it's a poison swamp. (laughs) It only gets worse from there. It only gets worse. Um, and yeah, the poison swamp is like a classic thing in these Soulsborne games. Like last time I was here on Weirdest Thing, I talked about Elden Ring. That game's got poison swamps. Dark Souls has them. Bloodborne's got them. They're everywhere. Uh, so you go through this poison swamp. It's a really cool like kind of bog area. It's kind of nice. You know, we love bogs here on Weirdest Thing. Um, love a bog. Love a bog body, additionally. Yes, we've done bog bodies here, actually. Good times. Um but yeah, you get to the end of this bog and you find the boss and it's this beautiful, terrifying spider lady <laughs> and her name is Quaylog. Whoa, uh, what a good, what a beautiful name for a girl. I Quaylog. love her. Uh, she's like this woman and she has long, dark brown hair and she's kind of naked. Like they don't show you her nipples, but like she's not wearing clothes. Oh my God. Um, But then like at the end of her torso, like from the waist down, she's attached to the top of this like giant grotesque spider. All right, it has, a, right, it has a bunch right. of eyes and it's kind of hairy and then it pukes lava and she uses a fire sword. It's a very cool boss. One of my favorites. Um, but yeah, so then, you know, she's like a fire boss. And then when you beat her, you keep going down lower and it's a fire zone. It's like fire, magma, death, you know, all this fire stuff. So all of that, you know, thinking about like the swamp and then like the fire kind of oozing up beneath makes me think of Princess Bride as well, yeah, which has the fire swamp, um, which again, kind of seems like a normal swamp, but then the jets of fire burst forth from the ground. Um, almost like there is some p- pool of fire and magma and death underneath. And I wondered to myself, are fire swamps real? And the answer is maybe kind of, sort of. Uh, so there have been instances in real life of people traversing swamps, either on foot or by boat, and then poof, a plume of flames erupts. Um, and this is where a lot of like ghost stories and swamps come from. So there is some European folklore um, where these fireballs were thought to be like satanic sprites that oh, could yeah. wield what fire. Oh yeah, what is the name for them? They have a fun Will name. of the Wisps. Yeah, Will of the yeah. Wisps. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and then actually, there's another tale, like old European folk tale, about these like lights in the swamp being the soul of a man named Jack. And yeah. he, was de- he was denied entry to the underworld. And so he was like this grumpy old ghost and he's holding like this lantern. So it's like jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> oh. And apparently the lantern was supposed to be like a burning piece of coal inside of a carved turnip. All right. I don't know why. I mean, maybe they just didn't have pumpkins there. but And we don't really know like why it, we use pumpkins for jack-o'-lanterns. But, you know, the idea basically was that this like old like lost soul jack was like luring travelers off the path and you know you'd get lost or you'd drown or whatever so you know just just little ghost things just um, ghost things just, just, just being just grumpy things. and being like oh i'm so mad i'm gonna go <laughs> lead someone astray and lead them yeah. to a swamp and then engulf them in flames <laughs> yeah exactly so um okay so Let's say, you know, maybe it's not ghosts. Like, what could another explanation be? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But if it's not, could it be a scientific phenomenon? Well, Popsi actually did a story on this back in 2018. Uh, and the writer of that story, Benji Jones, 
interviewed a few folks about it. He interviewed somebody, um, uh, a microbial biochemist at Rutgers named Jeff Boyd. And Dr. Boyd said, unlike oceans and lakes, bog water is stagnant and oxygen deprived. So this makes the perfect environment for anaerobic bacteria, which again, I talked about in my Elden Ring corpse wax fact, but basically anaerobic bacteria are just microorganisms that live like really well without oxygen. Like they don't need oxygen to survive. So they thrive in the swamps and in the bogs. And then in bogs, one specific group of anaerobic microbes can be especially present. And that group specifically is called the methanogens. <laughs> That's um, kind of a sleigh name. Yeah. Right. Right. So I like that. Good you name. might be asking, you know, what is a methanogen? Uh, well, these things, they eat dead plant material. They break it down. And the byproduct can be methane gas. Wow. Uh, methane wow. gas is very flammable. You probably know where this is going. <laughs> farts, farts. Yeah. Farts. Well, yes, definitely farts. <laughs> uh, but basically, yeah, like all of these methanogen bacteria things, um, they are hanging out in these bogs, making fart gas, flammable fart gas underwater. It kind of gets trapped down there. Sometimes it like jostles around surfaces and then it gets ignited and it's a plume of flame. Um, and yeah, this notion of the fire swamp isn't exactly new. In fact, flammable bogs are a part of what some people consider to be the first American science experiment. Ooh. Wow. I don't know if that's like official, but like people kind of say that. So basically, here's here are the deets. In 1783, George Washington, he was waiting in Princeton, New Jersey for the freshly signed Treaty of Paris. Um, he was killing time with his with his pals by debating something. He was arguing with Thomas Paine and his soldiers about how these will-o'-the-wisps uh, were formed. Apparently, they were very well documented at the time. Um, and so Washington and Paine were like, it's natural gas. Like, come on. It's that simple. The soldiers were like, no, no. Like, it's it's ghosts. Yeah, something spooky. <laughs> yeah. So um, they took a boat out on the I think it was the Millstone River and it was a very bog swampy area. Um, and this is uh, from Doug Evely, another microbiologist at Rutgers. And he said that they took long poles and probed the mud. Um, for and yeah. for mud get out of the, and then, get out of the mud ghost. <laughs> they actually held a flame over the water. So when, the gas came up and it ignited a big flash. Um, so they found that their first fire swamp. So that's what people say is like the first experiment in America, which, you know, experiment used loosely, but could be. Um, and apparently, so this, I found this info from 2008 that like people reenact it. <laughs> that's I so much better that. than most reenactments. I agree. Now I need to see if they keep doing I it. I want to go hunting for mud ghosts. I'm exactly. with you. Rejoice, um, people of New Jersey. You have a cool story. Yeah. <laughs> and like a potentially cool thing to attend. I feel like Jersey gets a lot of hate when we like, we should be taking that aversion to the state of Ohio. <laughs> Listen, as someone who was both born in New Jersey and now lives in New Jersey, though two very different parts of the state, um, I agree. New Jersey is great. <laughs> is it, uh, you know... A trash state full of trash people, yes, but so is the entire United States of our America, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's got really great stuff here, so I'm a fan. Like yeah. the Jersey Turnpike, both the highway <laughs> and the dance move. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh. We have Hoagie Fest, so oh, <laughs> end of discussion. <laughs> Well, the final piece here, coming back to the will of the wisp, how do, so if, if this, if basically, if this gas is getting like created and then dislodged, like how does it get ignited if it's just by itself out there in the bog and you're seeing it from afar? How does mm. that happen? So this is still somewhat of a mystery, but there are some theories. So one example is that uh, anaerobic microbes can make another byproduct when they're out there eating stuff called phosphine and that's a compound that is known to spontaneously combust 
uh, when it comes into contact with oxygen. So maybe this is another thing that they make when it comes to the surface, hits oxygen, <laughs> makes a little heat, makes a little combustion, lights the fart gas on fire. Um, and by fart gas, I do mean methane, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> um, and other people think that uh, all these compounds in the bog, all these chemicals could be creating something called chemiluminescence, which is just a reaction that makes light instead of heat. Ooh. And um, that is like what fireflies do when they light up their butts. Uh, and some people actually think it is just fireflies, which I think is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, like I think no offense to the no offense to the bug, the fireflies. Um, but like a a plume of fire is yeah something like the mental image of that with a bunch of fireflies. Yeah, brighter than just like. Oh, yeah, look. I agree. It's a summer night in a field. Look <laughs> yes. at how beautiful, how quaint, how gorgeous. Yeah, I agree. And it seems like something like some old like curmudgeon would be like, you're crazy. It's just a firefly, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, sir, anyway. have you seen a, a firefly? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So scientists basically think it's more likely that it is the first situation of the gas and the phosphine. Maybe there's an explanation we don't know yet, but fire swamps are thought to like have some kind of scientific explanation. They're very rarely, if ever, caught on film, though. So Ooh. that's another like kind of question mark. But um, yeah, just some final fun facts before I wrap up. Over the course of researching this fact, I learned that another word for swamp is quag, Q-U-A-G, which is just it's- like the name of that boss, Quaylag. I, I wonder if that's the same root as like quagmire. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think of that. That makes total sense. Yeah, that's like a, a swamp of a situation, if you will. Right. Oh my gosh. Wow, that makes total sense. Um, Language is so cool, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love linguistics, actually. Um, but yeah, and then the last thing is that, bring it all back to Dark Souls, um, is that like the ideas of fire and pyromancy in Dark Souls are often associated with chaos. And I just kept thinking about how, um, you know, we have like a scientific metric for measuring chaos or at least kind of like, you know, measuring disorder is how it is like entropy. Basically. Sure, yeah. Um, and how in Dark Souls, you know, if you think of like where the chaos magic and the chaos stuff is in Dark Souls, it's in like the fire and the swamp, which I think are traditionally very high like levels of entropy which i think is yeah. cool yeah he um, is a uh, chaotic from a right right physical standpoint exactly so yeah i just love a little art meets science moment yeah um but yeah i, I think-, think we should all take a field trip to <laughs> the the river the yeah, river you guys come to new jersey <laughs> and um we'll, we'll either you know find an official recreation or we'll just do it ourselves Sounds like, exactly just i love that mud, so. yeah <laughs> we'll get some long sticks it'll be a blast <laughs> it's like all right so you hold the lighter you poke the dog <laughs> that's what we're doing instead of the next weirdest thing live show <laughs> just a bog poking trip um, yeah <laughs> amazing uh so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week um so many so many facts so fun <laughs> wow i mean the the real weirdest thing we learned this week were the friends we made along the way um, exactly and the scams we got away with yeah the nuptial <laughs> gift sticks out um, to me yeah i'll be thinking about the like disturbingly apt metaphor of giving <laughs> someone chocolate and then how horrifying that metaphor becomes immediately. yes yes um, danger yeah well it was a good app good app. Uh, so yeah so we're all winners in my book exactly uh, i love that <laughs> loved personally i'm here for the fire swamp yeah nice. it's a good, Bring it's me good. To the bog. i love i love a <laughs> fart in bog <laughs> yeah the weirdest thing i learned this week is produced by all of our hosts including me rachel faltman along with jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.